Good morning, church. Please, please rise. Today's reading will come from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. This can be found on page 149 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat backs. Um, and for all of our friends who may be new or may need a Bible, these are for you to take with you as a gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machiar, the son of Amiel, at Lodibur. The king, David, sent and brought him from the house of Machiar, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king, commands, his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Thus says God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so accustomed to declaring the words of that most popular hymn that we just sung, God, that grace is amazing. And this is not in any way an untrue statement. But Lord, it is one that by its familiarity that we can often overlook the depth of amazing grace, God, that saves wretches 
like all of us are. So God, I pray that today you would stir us to see grace for all that it is. We pray that you would just illuminate the, 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 the pages of Scripture so that we can see and be fed with the truth of your grace. God, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. We pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, prepare our ears to hear it. God, I pray for myself that I would preach it in a way that only honors you, honors your people, honors your church, honors your word, and that, God, I I acknowledge before this faithful people, Lord, that I cannot do that without your help. And so I ask for that help now, Lord, that you would empower me to preach your word as it was given, adding nothing, taking away nothing. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. couple things I want to share with you. Number one, it is great to have the kids in here this morning. Welcome, kids. I hope you're, I hope you're ready to hear this story this from the Bible that I'm going to share with you. And um, we do this for those of you who are visiting. We bring our children in instead of having children's classes every fifth Sunday so that they can experience the, the worship and, um, uh, and, and enjoy the liturgy with us. And so we're really glad to have them. Second thing is, I want to remind you of the uh, Thanksgiving dinner that's going to be happening at, at New Home, I'm sorry, at Wolferth Baptist Church, First Baptist Church on the 12th. It's going to start at 5 o'clock. We're going to have a psalm sing and some encouragement to thankfulness. And then we're going to have this a huge dinner. And we don't want anybody finding an excuse not to be there. Because you'll you'll miss out if you're not there. Isn't that right, Sherman? So <laughs> um, so we want you to be there. And we need some help. We, we had a lot of you respond last week. But we need some of you to make turkeys. The church will provide those turkeys. And all we need you to do is make them for us and bring them up there. And then the rest of you, we need you to bring sides and desserts and, and bread and things like that. And you can, we have a sign-up sheet in the foyer on this black table. Please, before you leave today, we're down to two weeks before. Uh, and so please, before you leave today, make sure you, you fill that out so we can know who's coming, what you're bringing, et cetera, et cetera. And the last and most important thing that I need to say before I get into the Word, is it not great to have Pastor David back this morning? And we are so glad to have him and and uh, just cannot wait. I, I told him this morning that he got back Thursday night and I told him, Friday all day I thought about calling him. Saturday all day I thought about calling him. I, th- I figured that I didn't want uh, Katie throwing a rock at my head after not seeing him for two day- two weeks. So I just kind of backed off. And I, I, this is the first time I've to, got to see him as well since he got back. So uh, I'm going to buy him breakfast this week and hear all his stories. And then we'll make an opportunity quickly for you guys to hear them as well. So um, we're really glad to have him back. Uh, for those of you that are visiting this morning, we've been for several weeks. This is actually our 13th week in a series that we've been going through on the attributes of God. And we've covered many of them already. Today we're going to be talking about the grace of God. So our, our song leading into the message was... Totally appropriate. I thank Gabriel and Natalie for that. Um, but the story we read, you may not, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the details of the life of King David, you may not immediately see the connection. Um, if you're unfamiliar at all with the biographical details of King David's life, um, a bit of historical background to the story we read might be helpful. And so, in 1 Samuel 8, we were in 2 Samuel 9 today, so a whole book before this, the people of Israel 
sinfully weary of being under the direct uh, rule of God himself. They were frustrated with the corruption of the judges of Israel um, who were leading their nation. And they wanted in their hearts to just be like everyone else. They wanted to be like every other nation surrounding them. And so they go to Samuel, their their prophet judge, and they demand that he appoint a king over them, a human king. And the Lord tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 7, and, uh, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Israel was choosing human wisdom, human strength, as opposed to divine strength and divine wisdom. Though they had received a flawless law at Mount Sinai and a perfect, benevolent king in the triune God himself, they were nevertheless discontented and unsatisfied. So God leads Samuel to a man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. He is a physically impressive man. He's towering in stature. He's physically rugged. He's the kind of man that people are attracted to, the kind of man that people want to follow because of his looks, because of his strength, because of his willingness to compromise and be agreeable to all kinds of people. But see, it was that willingness to compromise that doomed Saul's kingdom. On a couple of occasions in the scripture, we see him defying God's direct commands. And so God told him through Samuel, who had anointed him as king, that God was now ripping the kingdom from his hands and replacing him with a man. God was saying he was going to replace Saul with a man after his own heart. And the Holy Spirit then led Samuel secretly to the house of Jesse in Judah. And and when he comes to Jesse's house, he has Jesse bring all of his sons before before Samuel. Or Samuel has all bring all his sons before him, and so that he could anoint the new king. He sees the first one. He says, "This has to be the guy. This is an impressive specimen of masculinity. He has to be the guy." But one by one, God rejected, utterly rejected Jesse's sons as candidates for the job of king of Israel. Jesse, however, had one more son. He'd been out in his fields, tending his father's sheep. No one even thought he was important enough to call him to this meeting at the house. So they rush off, they go get him. And when this young man, David, appeared before Samuel, the Holy Spirit immediately confirmed that he was to be the king. So Samuel anointed him with oil, and he left the house. Now shortly thereafter, the most famous story that we have, boys and girls, about David, which is when he, you might remember he fought Goliath, that happened. Shortly after this, this event, David's brothers go off to fight in a war with the Philistines. And in this war, the whole army of Israel is doing very little fighting. They're intimidated because of this giant Philistine named Goliath who's making death threats against them constantly. And they're scared to death. 
David, however, doing nothing more than delivering lunch to his brothers one day, hears the insults, the threats, the harassment of this giant, and he's filled with rage. And trusting in God, he is not intimidated. Believing in God, David marches boldly onto the battlefield and just quickly slays that giant. What nobody in the army of Israel could do. And this not only brings David to the direct attention of King Saul, but it also brings him to the attention of the entire nation of Israel. At first, Saul appreciates David as a military commander and also as a singer-songwriter. I mean, this guy was the total package. He had, he had heavy-duty doses of masculinity and a soft-sensitive side, ladies. You would have loved David. He writes, he plays, he sings songs, and these songs have the ability to soothe Saul's troubled spirit. But Saul's appreciation of David was to be short-lived, and this is why. Because Saul, among his many defects, was a very, very jealous man. And, and, and he begins to hear the, the women of Israel, the Hebrew women, dancing and singing in the streets, banging on tambourines, and singing songs with lyrics like this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. They're saying that, that, that Saul just can't even compare to the level of heroism illustrated by David. And so Saul goes literally blind with rage. He's furious about this. And he begins to plot to kill David. A couple times he actually throws his spear at David. And in spite of this, interestingly enough, David begins a true friendship, a deep heartfelt friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And and Jonathan believes with all of his heart that someday... Not himself, but that David will be king. And, and, and Jonathan does a really interesting thing, seeing that he's the son of the currently reigning king. He pledges all of his support to David, and even he, he even serves as David's spy to check out what Saul is doing and report back to David. And, uh, and so David makes a covenant, a sacred promise to Jonathan that when he is enthroned, he will remember Jonathan's family and and protect them and take care of them. Yet Saul's persecution of David just intensifies and intensifies until David has to flee the city and hide not for a little while. Not He wasn't playing hide and go seek. He hid for years in the wilderness, sometimes barely escaping Saul's grasp. But God, throughout this whole story, we always see him Guiding and protecting and instructing and providing for David. God never fails him. And soon what happens is really interesting. David's out there in the wilderness and soon other men who are in deep trouble like David is, soon to gather to him and become his fugitive band. And this is what uh, 1 Samuel 22.2 says. It says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, Everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Now, doesn't that sound like an army you can have confidence in? And he became commander over them, and they were with him about 400 men. And the day finally came 
through a, a long series of events, the day finally came when God judged Saul for his rebellion. They're at war with the Philistines. He's mortally wounded. And he decides uh, to fall on his sword. He chose suicide to escape capture and torture by the Philistines. And that day, it wasn't just Saul. Uh, Saul's three sons, including Jonathan, all fell. They all died. It was a dark day in Israel. And yet that day, a, a portion of the nation of Israel made David their king. God had kept his promise. Though he had prepared David for leadership, as God always prepares people for leadership, by the things he suffered, and in his case, the things he suffered under King Saul, the men who joined him in the wilderness became the leaders, especially the military leaders in David's administration. However, there remained some in Israel when David first was crowned, Uh, who were still loyal to Saul. But over time, I wish I had time to give you all the details. It's a great story. But over time, David won the hearts of even his most stubborn detractors. And was he was the king over all of Israel, united in power over, over the whole nation. And it's really interesting, though, how he responded. When people would try to impress King David, they said, Hey, we found these guys that were loyal to Saul and we killed them. Saul would, uh, David would always respond very negatively to that. In fact, he would respond in rage. He considered Saul the Lord's anointed and told them not to touch Saul. And so, uh, uh, you know, even when they, they found people that were against him, he would be, he would be their defender. And this was, you, you might look at that and you go, what is wrong with David? Why would he do that? I mean, Saul spent years trying to kill him. Well, it was because of this. It was because of his love and his covenant with Jonathan, the son of Saul. He'd made a covenant to show kindness to all of Saul's and therefore Jonathan's relatives. And so our text today, that was all introduction. Now are you ready for me in the sermon now? Our text today picks up shortly after David's kingdom is firmly established. He is the king of Israel. And so, going back to our text that Leader read to us in verse 1, it says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, let's break this down. David, meditating on his friendship with Jonathan, finds one of the old servants. And this, when he finds a servant, he immediately swears allegiance to the new king and his government. What's going on there? Ziba does not want to be seen as a rebel, as a insurgent. He wants to make it clear to David, Hey David, you're the boss now. Whatever you say, it doesn't matter that I was Saul's servant. Whatever you say is, is the rule now. See, this is important because we were li- we're living in a time, and thank God we are, we live in a system where, that, that still for the most part honors the peaceful transition of power. We may... And because of this, we may miss the significance of the question uh, that David is asking Ziba. 
In ancient times, when a king was crowned, a new king was crowned, he would ruthlessly and unapologetically exterminate any remaining heirs to the throne, thus eliminating potential rivals. He didn't want anybody else fighting for his throne. But humble David responded completely differently. Once his throne was established, he actually sought for someone in Saul's line who he could bestow honor upon, who he could show kindness to. To David's delight, he learned that one of Jonathan's own sons remained alive. But Ziba said, this man might not be a benefit to your kingdom, David. Let me got to tell you, he's... He's crippled. He's permanently handicapped. Probably not much that he can do for you, David. He'd be of no military use. It's unlikely that this is the kind of guy you would set to, you know, receive dignitaries. You're not going to give this guy an important position. He's crippled in both of his feet. And we learn earlier in the Bible how this young man's feet were injured. 2 Samuel chapter 4, a few, ver- few chapters earlier, verse 4, we read, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. It seems that in the chaos and mayhem that was following the war wherein Saul and Jonathan died, that Mephibosheth's nurse, running for her life, either dropped him, or some scholars suggest she threw him down just to get out of there fast, um, and, and, and abandoned him. We don't know which, which it was, but for the rest of his life, what we do know is that he was unable to walk normally, and therefore that he was unable to earn a living for himself. There was no ADA protections for people like Mephibosheth in ancient Israel. There was no welfare system. And so in this, in, in this, uh, of, uh, uh, Second Samuel, in our, in our verse, we read the king, in verse 4, we said, The king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, in the, uh, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him. Verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of David, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face to pay homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! The, the, the way this is written in the Hebrew, it, it's an it's a exclamation. He's like saying it with forcefulness and loudness. Mephibosheth! Getting his attention. And he answered, Behold, Mephibosheth answered, I am your servant. And David seems to have read his mind because he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now notice, I want you to pick up a few things about this this detail in the middle section of our text. Notice that Mephibosheth was living in another man's house. Because of his disability, he is completely dependent He's unable to earn a living, so he was relying on Machir, the son of Amiel, whoever that was. He's living under his roof. He's eating his food. He's probably wearing clothes that were generously provided by him. 
And second, notice this, if you're not familiar with biblical geography, Mephibosheth was living in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar was not in Israel proper. It was on the east side of the Jordan. He's away. This, this grandson of the former king is now living away from the power centers of Israel. Most likely, he's in hiding. What he had always feared, he thought was coming true. He feared that David, the new king, would come looking for him to kill him or to enslave him. And for this reason, when David finally does track him down and calls out his name for the very first time, his only response, his only hope of survival is to fall down and humble himself. He prostrates himself with his face on the ground before David, the new rightful king. And he, like Ziba before him, pledges his undying allegiance to David's throne. Now note how David responds. So beautiful. He says, Mephibosheth, I made a covenant with your father before you were ever born. I've come to bless you and not to harm you. I'm restoring your grandfather's wealth to you, and I personally will provide for you. In verse 8, this is Mephibosheth's response to that news. It says, he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should show such regard for a dead Dog, such as I. Now, if you're if you're if you're not as educated on you know biblical stuff, just so I know, because of my advanced education, I'll tell you this: dead dog is not a compliment. So anyway, just that's that's what years of study will get you. It's it's not a it's not a compliment to refer to yourself or to someone else as a dead dog. Mephibosheth doesn't say it's about time. What took you so long, David? I deserve this. I've been rotting out here in Lodabar while you're living off the wealth of my father, living off the wealth of my grandfather. No. Instead, his response to this news is worship. It's homage. It's adoration. It's dumbfounded humility of what has been granted to him. He acknowledges both David's kindness and his own unworthiness. And David, we're not done. He he doesn't stop at restoring royal land and offering a dinner invitation in perpetuity. He literally brings this one-time representative of his enemy into the royal household. And promises to treat him as though he were David's own natural born son. Now a few of you are figuring out where I'm going with this. Let that sink in. A natural born son. But David's already generous kindness still wasn't even close to being exhausted. He wasn't just offering Mephibosheth a gracious, albeit temporal, benefit. He was about to permanently change his life. He would bestow glory on Mephibosheth. Here's how it looks. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. What did we just see there? Mephibosheth is in exile. He is poor. He is crippled. He is unable to provide for himself. And with a single command of the king's grace, he became the corporate head of an agricultural enterprise with 36 employees. And he's insured by the federal government. There would be no more fear. There would be no more wanting. There would be no more begging. There, In the exaltation of the righteous king, Mephibosheth found himself exalted also. His whole future was rewritten in an instant, regardless of his shameful past. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord commands, the, the, my Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So everything changed for both Mephibosheth and his own son, his own progeny. This was a generational change. The the defeated, humiliated, uh, shameful king of Israel has one heir. And now that heir has a promise of provision for all the generations following him. This wasn't because of Mephibosheth's goodness. Don't ever make that mistake. It wasn't because of his strength. It wasn't because of his wisdom certainly wasn't because of his family name. All of this was happening to this young man because of David's kindness to his one-time enemy. The chapter ends with a blunt reminder, a repeated reminder. It's like, guys, let him off the hook a little bit here. But the last words of this chapter say it again. Now he was lame in both his feet. What's happening here? It's almost to me like the point is being emphasized that there was nothing in Mephibosheth that warranted or could have incited David's kindness. So my topic is under the heading, the attributes of God this morning is the grace of God. Why did it when I spend all morning long reviewing a Bible story from the Old Testament with you? Well, can we possibly be so blind? Don't you see what's lying beyond the shadows here? It's beautiful. Everybody grab your Bible. I'd like for all of you to look at this with me. And and keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth to it a few times. But everybody turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Most of this, most, To most of you, this is going to be a familiar passage. I didn't look up the, the page numbers. Anybody got the page number for people who need blue bubbles? 
Shout it out. 568, thank you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 beginning, shows us that we are all people who are at war with the rightful anointed King of Kings. This is how it begins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the Saul course, following the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to the devil, by the way. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hebrews tells us that we passed all our days enslaved by the devil to the fear of death. We were exiled from the God that we once knew. We were cast out of Eden. The only king that any of us now served was our own desires as we rested in, as we resisted rather God's reign. Constantly raging and rebelling against the rule of Christ, who was the only rightful king, the one that was chosen, the one that was anointed, the one that was equipped to rule by God's decree. And being guilty of conspiracy against this God, we hid our faces from him. We ran away as far as we could from his holiness. We were not only crippled by sin, but we were truly dead in it. We were both unwilling and entirely incapable of meriting grace. Look again at the passage, verse 4 now. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When we were hiding, when we were fearful, when we were dead, we did not seek God out. God sought us out that he might show his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy to us. See, it wasn't our goodness, no way. It wasn't our strength, sure wasn't our beauty that elicited elicited such kindness from the Heavenly Father. It was His own good pleasure to love us. He could have been justified if He'd chosen rather to simply destroy us all. But this is the definition of grace. Those who are undeserving live under this banner that says, by grace you have been saved. And it's wholly undeserved by us. When he comes to us and calls forth our name. Like Mephibosheth, we tremble. What does he want? Does he want to judge us? Does he want to enslave us? Does he want to put us to death? For our grasping at his throne? No. He declares his intention is to bestow goodness upon us and not wrath. And what form does this goodness take? Look at verse 6 now. 
He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. We have been called to sit at the table in the palace. He has invited us in, made a place for us to sit. What an honor it would have been if salvation looked like this. You're saved, now you'll be a slave at my footstool. Still would have been an honor. But like the father of the prodigal son, he will not hear of it. He will not accept you on terms of, of you know, menial slavery. He has plenty of slaves already. They're called angels. His grace is freely granted to us so that though we come to him as slaves, we, we become sons and daughters, princes and princesses, co-heirs with Christ himself of his glorious, eternal, heavenly kingdom. And this passage in, in Ephesians tells us that we serve as, re, as reminders to all of creation of God's incalculable grace. He receives glory forever when sinners like us are forgiven and accepted. Now why would God choose to shower grace on such unworthy brutes as ourselves? Can I tell you a secret? You will never find the answer looking in the mirror. You'll never look in the mirror and say, that's the reason God loves me. Because as I always like to say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That is never the reason why you're the recipient of grace. See, David wasn't good to Mephibosheth because of a promise made directly to him. He didn't even know Mephibosheth existed. But see, he remembered and honored a covenant made to Jonathan that David would remember his family. Now why are we the blessed recipients of God's grace? Guess what? I hate to burst your egocentric bubble, but it's not because of a promise made directly to you. But because of a covenant made by the Father with Christ the Son. Psalm 2 verse 7. This is a, a, a conversation between the Father and the Son in eternity past. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now watch this. Watch what the Father says to the Son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth your possession. The Father promised the Son a people for Himself. Truly more than that. Truly a bride. We are blessed in Christ because of God's faithfulness to Christ. Amen? We are getting the overflow of the Father's love and kindness to the Son. We are blessed in Christ. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Mephibosheth teaches us that the grace of God is only made available to one kind of people. That's it. One kind of people get the grace of God. It's only made available to the enemies of God. Those who are crippled beyond repair by sin. See, grace invites us not to be mere recipients of mercy... Mercy is always an element of grace, but it's more than just being a recipient of mercy, which is not getting what we do deserve. But he calls us to be sons and daughters invited to the family, to the table of God, to receive what we never, ever, ever, ever could have received. What we never could have deserved. So this morning, my prayer for our church is that we may receive the grace of God just like Mephibosheth did. you remember how he received it? He didn't receive it with boasting. He didn't receive it with arrogance. He didn't receive it with a sense of entitlement. He received the gift of God, or the gift of David's grace, like we receive the gift of God's grace, with heartfelt humility and praise. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we ask that you would... God, just help us to remember grace, to remember what we've been saved from. God, we've literally been saved from death. God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But you made us alive together with Christ. When Christ rose, we rose by his decree. And we who once shook our fist in the face of God have been invited to the table to sit there, not as as slaves who are doomed to a life of servitude, we have been made sons and daughters, and it is now our pleasure to serve whatever the Master asks. We serve in the house of God because we belong to the house of God. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not had that work of grace, they haven't heard you call their name like David called Mephibosheth's name, that this would be the day that you would call their names, that the work of grace would go forward and and do something in their hearts. Lord, help them to repent of their sins, to believe the gospel. God, be seated. Take their place at your table to sit there forever. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our communion helpers can come forward. We are about to receive of the Lord's uh, table, which I hope this morning has very special meaning to you as we've considered the invitation of David to sit at the at the table, uh, at his own table, and uh, have a place there forever to feast on David's goodness. We also considered Ephesians chapter 2, where we are told that not some day in the sweet by and by, but right now, this very moment, we've been seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We have been given a seat at the table, and this this meal is representative of that seat that we have at the table as we take the broken bread, which represents Christ's body, and the, the wine, which represents his blood. Then we remember that he uh, was sacrificed so that the grace that I've tried to describe this morning could be offered to all of us. There are some of you here, no doubt, that 
that have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And if that describes you, if you have not, you know, you may consider yourself to be a little religious, but, but if you looked at your life, you would know that, that Christ is not anywhere close to your priority. And if that's the case, I would encourage you to just stay put this morning and, uh, as we come to receive this, not because we're trying to be, uh, legalistic or withhold something from you. It's because it would mean nothing to you. This is something that is, is a, a symbolic of our connection, our union with Christ that unites us to his resurrected body. And, and so if you're not there in your belief, then we would like to invite you to just stay in your seat. Um, but here's what we would rather you do is that you'd come and find myself or Gabriel or Pastor David after the service and talk to us, we want to introduce you not only to this Christ, but this life and and what it means to truly follow Jesus. I want you to know that we're praying for you, that you'll make that decision um, because that Christ is everything. Everything that you're clinging to right now in life will soon be gone. But but Christ is everything, and he is eternal. And so for the rest of you, come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat, and um, and we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's pause and give thanks to the Lord for his amazing, wonderful grace. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done in giving us Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, for your obedience to the Father and in dying a death for us and even a death on the cross. Thank you for your glorious resurrection. Thank you for the the ever-flowing river of grace that flows towards your people. God, help us to cherish it, help us to love it, help us to seek it out, help us to rejoice in it, help us to run to it when we falter. And God, we thank you for it with all of our hearts and, and give you glory for what you have done, for the indescribable gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to give you this benediction. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here.